Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to Girl on Fire podcast on the Believe Network, New York's number one podcast network for personal growth. This is your host, Kirsten Franklin, and on this week's show, we have with us Breen Sullivan, who's the founder of The Fourth Floor, an innovative membership community and ecosystem for women reimagining community, the boardroom, investment, and how we support female entrepreneurship. Women have a hard time getting board seats, and they also have a hard time raising money to scale their companies. To solve this, The Fourth Floor brings entrepreneurs and leaders together so we can increase the number of women on boards. Be more competitive, you know, just be more competitive at fundraising and create wealth. Green and the Fourth Floor have been featured by Forbes, Corporate Council Magazine, Law.com, The American Lawyer, Above the Law, Women on the Record podcast, and her CEO journey, the Business Finance Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs. Green herself holds a JD from Tulane uh, and a BA from Yale University. She has earned certificates and coursework from places such as Bolt Hall, Berkeley, uh, Universita Deglia, Studi. Breen's background is as a C-suite executive, a general counsel for tech startups, where she worked with startups and um, high-growth companies for nearly a decade, and uh, mostly specializing in technology like SAAS, energy efficiency, data science. Breen also personally invests in startup and enjoys serving as a board advisor to startup and growth companies. Everybody, welcome Breen Sullivan. Hey, Breen. Thanks for joining us. Hi, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I love it. I love it. I love it. So, I mean, here you are, you've created the fourth floor and we're going to get into that in a, in a moment, but I mean, just to start this episode with some, some staggering statistics, 2.4 million women exited the job market between last February and now. Okay. $3.31 billion went to female-only founded companies. That's only 2.2% of all the money given to startups. Okay. And that's down from the year before. In 2019, at least we were ramping up with 2.6. And right. I know it's not because our ideas suck. That's for sure. So, so I really, really love the fourth floor. I tout it all the time. Um, I've actually dropped you guys in other episodes when I'm talking to other entrepreneurs and, and, and owners um, and founders. And so let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, tell me why the fourth floor. Right. Yes. Um, so, and, and actually, I, I just was thinking about these staggering statistics that you were mentioning. And of course, there are so many, you know, the corollary when it comes to board seats. And, uh, you know, and this is at the heart and soul of, of the fourth floor. It always has been. It was kind of making that connection between investment dollars or lack thereof and, you know, uh, the ability to scale and find funding or lack thereof for women entrepreneurs and, and then see the corollary when it comes to women who hope to initiate and or advance a for-profit board career. It's really the same, it, 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 same staggering statistics. And at the heart and soul of both of those issues, you know, th there's connection. And, um, and so let me just, you know, maybe take a step back and, and just briefly talk about the fourth floor, why the fourth floor. My background is as a general counsel for tech startups. 
And it was when I was on startup number two, where I just realized that there was this insidious access issue that women like me were dealing with, that it was really hard to kind of put your finger on it. No one was really talking about it. But all of these colleagues around me at these tech startups who you know just happened to be overwhelmingly male, they seemed to have the kind of inside track when it came to advisory board opportunities, investment opportunities, things like that in the entrepreneurial landscape. And I was just one step removed. I was out of the loop, even though I was a general counsel, startup GC, that with skills that and, and experience that would be directly valuable as an advisor to these startups. But yet it was not obvious to me. There was no platform where I could go and access these opportunities. There was no marketplace. There was no way, no exchange to, to, to find the sort of under the radar private board opportunities. And same with investment, because they're really, the, the, they're very closely connected. And so that was that was the, the eureka moment I had. And then I actually went to a networking event that I wouldn't usually go to that was for women founders, not lawyers, because as a lawyer, you tend to hang out with other lawyers. And just as humans, we tend to, you know, we, we are in the networks we're in, and then we kind of stay within that you know, insular network, but by crossing over and and going to this event outside of my comfort zone, I'm with all these founders, and I was the only lawyer there. And it just became really clear by the end of the night that there was something here that me, uh, Tech GC, I had something of value as an advisor, advisory board member to these startup founders. And and they felt that way. I felt that way. And I knew I wasn't alone. I knew there were 800 other women just like me in the Women's General Counsel Network. And I knew that we were all frustrated that we couldn't initiate and advance our for-profit board careers. There was nowhere for us to go. And then I knew this founder I'm talking to, she's not alone. There's thousand more like her who are frustrated because they have difficulty getting like the money, like the statistics you cited in the beginning and, and getting the connections and the opportunities that help them advance. So that was, you know, that was at the, the very beginning. That was the insight. Okay. Differentiated networks. Let's bring them together under a common umbrella and let's, let's exchange. Let's give, let's lift each other up by giving the other group what the other one needs and wants. And so, you know, that, that, thus it was born. And then since then, over the last two and a half years, I was joined by my co-founders, Sarah Feingold and Kat Tahan. We have grown rapidly. And, and then of course, with COVID, that has enabled us to, you know, it's kind of accelerated all things digital. And it's, I think, helped the world get ready for the community as a service model. It's helped us, you know, see how we could pivot and and leverage a sophisticated um, online platform that could really help us scale, which is what we need to do in order to drive the systemic change we hope to drive because we are not going to be satisfied until we are really changing the demographics of for-profit startup and smaller company boards and cap tables. We want the, the demographics to shift to include women and we're not going to be satisfied until these women entrepreneurs are seeing the benefit from that. So until they are getting access to funding and they're able to scale and grow. So let me ask you this, because you mentioned kind of in the beginning, noticing that others had opportunities and sort of invites and sort of the inside track. 
and you didn't. What do you really, at that level, at that point in time, attribute that to? I mean, honestly, I really, really believe it's that, okay, because private companies are not, they don't have reporting requirements. They're not under scrutiny. There's no government body or quasi-government body looking at at their board composition and their cap tables and and taking note of those statistics, like that doesn't exist. And so because there's no transparency, what ends up happening is that whenever those opportunities come up, it's okay, whoever's close by and who, who are the players that are knowledgeable and that are in, are empowered to tap on the shoulder to, to appoint to a board, and that's investors. So when you look at the entrepreneur entrepreneurial life cycle, you're really talking about when a startup is, is approaching Series A, right? When they're now now all of a sudden they're they're working with investors, they're talking to investors, investors are, are telling them what they need to do to get ready for their investment. It's the investors that are in the position of the most influence and power and knowledge at that in those initial stages of a company thinking about its board composition. And so then it's the investors who, you know, they look to their roster. And, and so it's right. the people that they work with or it's their friends. And, and it's overwhelmingly one type of person. And then right. that is who they're populating on those boards. Because also, up until recently, I think it's the, the conventional thinking in many respects has been, they're just not thinking much about boards. They're not thinking about advisory boards. They're not thinking about governing boards. They're not thinking about the value that you could get from those different types of boards, leveraging them strategically. It's It's been much more of a, okay, I need to get funding and that's what I care about. And okay. you know, the way to get funding is to play the game and get this venture investor or that investor to write me a check. So I'm, that's my laser focus as a founder. I'm going to do what they tell me to do. And, and even if that founder has negotiated fervently to ensure they have one or two independent director seats on their board, a lot of times they don't even take advantage. They don't fill those seats. The seats remain empty. Mm. And, and, and that, and that's a miss. And, and I think, you know, I think like, why does this happen? I think, you know, a lot of it's just misinformation, right? Everyone's busy. Uh, board boards are sort of shrouded in mystery because, you know, they're, they're, they're like created by lawyers for lawyers. So everyone, you know, let's kill all the lawyers first. Like, you know, not a coincidence. So I think, I think there's, it's kind of needlessly mysterious. And so people don't really feel confident that they know exactly like the mechanics of the whole thing and like what's allowed and what's not allowed. And, you know, do you have to assemble an advisory board altogether? Can they be individual? You know, there's a lot of like misinformation and confusion. And and then I think there hasn't been an emphasis placed on it because it hasn't been in the investor's best interest, you know, either because the investor just wants to be able to have a lot of power you know, when it comes to sitting on the board of that startup they've invested in, and they don't care about the right, the right. founder, the founding team's right to like secure their own point of view. So it hasn't been convenient for investors to worry about it that much. And, and then I think like it's only recently that there's all of these studies and this common consensus that diversity on those boards really actually could make more money for those investors. So I think investors are starting to look at it differently, you know, as these studies come out, I've I definitely keep hearing about it more and more, whether it's right. private equity or it's venture. They're saying, okay, well, 
there might be something to this. Like we want our investment to succeed. If if that investment's more likely to succeed with a diverse board, okay. You know, we're not opposed to that. So like, I think it's like kind of misinformation. Everyone's moving quickly. It wasn't the focus up until recently. And then, but then there's this huge other piece, which is the women unable to initiate or advance for-profit board careers. And that is something, it's just no one was thinking about this. Like everyone talks about the publicly traded companies and NASDAQ and Goldman Sachs, all of these, you know, the boards that we hear about in the news. And and we're looking at those statistics and how they're starting to get better and they're still pretty bad. And then we talk about not-for-profit boards with their, it's, they're more accessible, but nobody has shown a light on or talked about or thought about the th- thousands of, of hundreds of thousands of boards in between those right. two. And, and what really got me when I was at that tech startup, that, that, you know, I said that lack of access, it was insidious. And that's what I mean by that, because it was very, very subtle. No one had a bad, there was no bad intentions. There was nothing sinister. Right. It was just, those are the feeder like starter opportunities. Those were the opportunities that my male colleagues who were, you know, at the same level as I was in the organization or lower or junior, they were starting with those opportunities because they were part of that whisper network, that buddy network. Like they knew someone that knew someone like they, they, again, not sinister. They were just, they had more access to those opportunities and I did not. And, and all of the women I knew did not. And so because we didn't have that initial access, that just set us way behind because right. those, those colleagues are, you know, they're getting the feet wet. They're getting this first opportunity. They're getting some equity. They're investing along the way. They're building their portfolios. They're, they're building these board resumes. And then 10 years from now, five, 10 years from now, my male colleagues have leveraged those experiences into promotions. They're now in the C-suite. They're now getting tapped for larger boards. They now are part of the pipeline for those big board opportunities. Whereas, you know, there's a pipeline problem because there aren't, you know, it's not a pipeline problem. It's a network problem. It's because we are out of the loop when we are, you know, earlier on in our careers. Yeah. So let me ask you this, you know, obviously my job as a coach, devil's advocate, blind spots, but, you know, bigger than this, how do you address someone? How do you advance? Okay, how am I going to say this? All right, how do you advance women in these positions when, like you mentioned, most of the time investors are going to pull from their network? They are going to pull from the people they know. They are going to pull from the people they trust, whether that's because they can control them and they don't mean anything. But I've actually experienced a lot of different things, I guess, on my end too, because I do work with a lot of founders. Um, and I usually want them to have gone through at least their series A, right? Because somebody has it for me. Well, it's been interesting because there have been people that wanted to hire me, but their investors actually assigned them a coach and said, if we fund you, you know, several millions and millions and millions of dollars, which is totally good. I actually appreciate that in the sense of, well, at least they have somebody there you know, we don't know how good it's going to go. So I have about three clients, you know, prospective clients that are, they're like, well, 
let's see what happens with them first. Because they don't know if it's like an inside person and they're just going to do whatever they want to do and tell you right. to do this, right? Or right. is it going to be real coaching? Is it going to be right. really a third-party perspective? Somebody from the outside who could be like, well, maybe that's not so great, you know? Or, right. or think about it this way. How do you feel about this, right? Like, no. So we don't really know yet who these people are, <laughs> but I do have three actual startups that their investors have, you know, strenuously encouraged them to hire somebody they know. Um, we don't know what that looks like yet, but you know, I mean, if we are talking about that, I mean, first of all, no one's going to tell me no. So I can feel as though they're going to feel the same way. If I'm throwing you a hundred million dollars, you're not going to tell me who I'm going to suggest, recommend, bring into the circle. I'm going to bring in the people that I know, like, and trust that I've worked with before that I know our communication's good and we're going to get this shit done. Right. So, so, you know, like, how do we break into that network because we need them to be familiar with us. Right. Right. I'm not saying it's fair or not fair, but I'm like, that's what we need. Right. Right. No, I think, I think that's a good point uh, that, um, that we need to break in, right. That, or that there needs to be, there needs to be the seeds of, of change from within, which I think, you know, I, I think, I think, I'm an optimist, but I do feel like, like the tide is turning a bit. And just if yeah. you if you read all the articles coming out, you know that I, I think there is um, there is an awakening happening within venture and within private equity where they realize it the system that exists today is not functioning as they would like it to, and that if it could function better, it would just make way more money for everyone and put way more wealth out into the world in terms of innovation and, and money and all sorts of things. So I think everyone's on the same page that finding a way to leverage diversity and innovation and and fix the parts of the existing system that just aren't working for 98% of of yeah. entrepreneurship that 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 is a value add for everyone like i think people don't disagree now as far as like how you get there i think there's a lot of of different schools of thought and i think i think we're in early stages of those industries kind of you know reframing themselves that's how it feels to me anyway i hope so um i do think though that independent director sees that there's two th- two very specific things i would say though in response to your question one is about advisory boards and the other is about independent director seats so number one advisory boards advisory boards are a resource that entrepreneurs can leverage before they even write a first line of code yeah. when it's idea stage when but they, they don't why don't they so when, but why don't they? Right. Why don't they? I think they don't because A, they don't know that. Okay. B, they don't have a community, a network mm. where they can easily access the right advisors, find advisors that will that will have skin in the game, care about their ultimate success, and also be credentialed and have the right skill set and expertise to really help propel that startup forward. That's no easy thing, right? A network, a powerful network, it's not a nice to have, it's the point. And a lot of of found of entrepreneurs that are coming out of the gate disadvantaged, i.e. they're not white men, they they're not already surrounded by that. Versus if you think about, you know, I don't know, the child, the very successful Silicon Valley venture capitalist who's a co-founder of, you know, his first startup, he might be coming out of the gate before he's written a line of code. 
already having that circle of advisors around him just by virtue of who he is and his network. So, you know, I think if you're looking at women entrepreneurs right away, they're less likely to have that built-in network. I mean, they might be the daughter of a venture capitalist. They might have it, but a lot of times they don't have it. So okay, wait, I want to just, before you even move on from that point, I, I, I want to say this because from where I sit, I see this often. And I've said this before. I was actually asked to speak out in Texas like for next month and I'm declining, but I was the only female on that panel. And the gentleman said to me, well, show me where they're at. And I think that there's a mindset because also as a coach, my coaching is pretty much 98% white male. Not just because it happens to be part of the C-suite, because I also coach with like founders of smaller businesses like mom and pop startups. Like that's my, that's my like side gig to make it fun. Right. Like, yes, I'll make money off the people that pay me $50,000 a year, but the rest of you, you know, come in cheaper, let's build it up. And I actually made a pledge to have 100 women over the next three years, make their first million dollars. Right. People don't jump at this chance. And I've noticed in coaching men will buy in a split second, like, Oh, I'll invest in myself. A woman has to digest, consider, and maybe, maybe not because you know, she can't, she can't, and not all of them, not all of them, but she can't kind of justify the expense, like as if spending mm-hmm. it on herself, it could be, it could be better spent elsewhere. Right. Right. And especially founders, like female founders will go through this series of, well, if I spent that on marketing or if I spent that, it's going to be, and, and it sounds logical, but a guy in the exact same position, we're like, fuck it, give me the, I'll pay. What do you, what do you want? If, if we're going to get there, we're going to get right. It's like the weirdest thing. But I wonder if that mindset plays into in some part, like our visibility, our ability to get picked up more easily. You know, we enter the workforce and we're all bra burners and screw us and, you know, go wear some pants lady. Like, you know what I mean? Like we've come in at this angle and it's been so interesting, but I wonder if part of the mindset that we might have generally, not all of us, like I'm just speaking in very general broad strokes, um, have also negative impact negatively impacted us because the scene is a bunch of loud mouths. The, the scene is right. a bunch of toot my own horn. I'm a winner. I'm a winner. You know, I mean, look at freaking Facebook, Instagram, you know, TikTok is the most gentle place. I love them the best, you know, because it's not that it's not like, I'm so amazing. It's, it's just like, Hey, this is what I do. Check it out. Right. But I mean, I wonder if there's a part of that and how can we actually change the culture of a planet that buys into that? I mean, that's that, that would be difficult without becoming the thing that we don't, I don't think we need to become that. Right. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, you can either you can either emulate, you can either be a successful woman in a man's world, or you can create your own playground. You know, you can do it differently, and you can be successful in your own world. I mean, I don't, I don't know. That may be oversimplified, but, um, but I guess okay. One thing that I would say in response to that, and this does relate to the whole advisory board thing, and why people don't know it's something they should leverage. They're not doing it early when they should. It does have to do with this need to reframe. You know the psychological need for reframing on both sides. So if you're a woman entrepreneur, and and this is something actually in our our board bootcamp is a bit of programming, which is pretty powerful. And it's a great first taste to the fourth floor, to our community and to everything that we are, because we we host this board bootcamp for entrepreneurs and potential board candidates simultaneously at the at, you know, at once in the room, and they go through a mutual reframe. And those entrepreneurs, they realize, they internalize that they deserve an advisory board and that they have something of value. Because yes. 
not only is this whole, you know, is board service like kind of wrapped up needlessly in mystery, but (laughs) there's also what you just said about like this kind of, you know, like women are way less likely to invest in themselves, less likely to, to understand that they have a commodity, that this advisory board, one reason that they should create it, that they should leverage it and build it out is that it's a commodity. And if they don't, if they don't make it flesh, then they're they're just it's, they're just leaving money on the table because these opportunities are really valuable to women who want to initiate and advance a for-profit board career. It just is because it's a way for that person to get a starter board opportunity and they can spin it into something larger down the road. Also, it's a way for that person to, you know, to, to collect lottery tickets, right? A, an entrepreneur, a startup, it could go big. It could yeah. be really valuable, even if, you know, even aside from the, the, the value it gives that, that board candidate on their resume and, you know, just in terms of the, the, the development potential, like the learning growth experience it gives that executive. But but even aside from all that, they, they usually end up with a little piece of equity that could be worth something down the road. So, you know, there, there's so many reasons why what that entrepreneur has in that advisory board is a commodity that is valuable. So they need to know that. They need to do the hard work, you know, to really um, identify what the skill gaps are, who the right advisors are, you know, who really will propel them to the next level? Who are they looking for? They have to do that work. But then that's why a community like the fourth floor, where it is literally our mission of the community is to increase the number of women on boards and cap tables of women-led startups to drive systemic change, right? So that that is what the community is about. So then by by finding a community of like-minded women, but from differentiated networks, then you have your pool of experts and you can build out your advisory board. So, so I think, and that was one point. The next point is that advisory boards are a great way to position yourself so that when you get to the series A, series B, and you're dealing with that you're a private equity portfolio company, or you're, you know, doing a large round in venture and they have all the sway, like they come in and they say, no, use this coach that coach. Okay. A big part of the reason why these independent director seats are so important, it's because it's for, it's for that, because it, it gives the founder, the founding team, not all the time, but sometimes if they're lucky, like if they've had good lawyers and, and they've retained enough control to negotiate along the way to have carved out their own sphere of influence and these independent director seats that they control, that is how they can push back. And and it's not that investors are bad. It's that the investors tend a lot of times tend to be myopic or right. have blinders on and, and they care about their LPs as they right. should. <laughs> they right. don't necessarily care about that startup overall beyond their LPs. And right. so the incentives don't always align between the founding team and the investors. And so when you have investors that that have 100% of the control on that board, you know, you're not leveraging your independent director seats, they're re- having an undue influence on, on the board, then they're dictating their experts and their specialists and everything else. Now, maybe they have some great ones who are going to be really beneficial, but as a founder, to, to retain and hold on to that control as long as you can. Having an advisory board early means you'll be ready. You'll have directors at the, you know, at the ready to take yeah. their seat. Like as your yeah, company yeah. matures, now you've had this advisory board that served you this whole time. Well, you will elevate 
one or two of those members to be your independent directors. They'll know you. They have skin in the game. They're on your side. And right there, you're not, you know, you have firepower, like when you're in this situation, which will just help protect you. Like you'll have, you'll have more say, you'll have more leverage. And, and, yeah. and so that you don't become one of those stories of like misaligned incentives and then the company suffers. Well, yeah, that's, I was just about to say, there's nothing worse than when you have this amazing startup. And I'm actually talking to one right now that I just want to cry over because, you know, you get an investor, they implant their people, right? All these necessary people, and you might be a small startup and they're not, they're not willing to go scrappy, but you're fine. They're, they're partially financing this thing. You're financing the rest of it. Next thing you know, you have no money to do some you know, massive build out, massive blowout, do this thing. And now you have clients waiting to, to, to get your product and you can't even produce it because now you're, you're out of money and now you're at odds with your, you know, your investors and they wanted to do it this way or that way. And you just, it's, it sucks. I think that's the worst thing that ever happens when you don't have the balls to protect your own seat. And if you don't have those people you don't feel maybe like you know enough sometimes and you feel like they should know better. Like they know better. They're smarter. That's not always true because like you said, sometimes they have a very unique or singular goal or perspective and they just really want to see, you know, how much can we get? How fast, how much can we squeeze it for? And sometimes that doesn't produce the next level, you know, sometimes it just doesn't. And if you had those, you know, uh, other members, right. Then on these independent seats, you wouldn't have, you probably wouldn't have said yes to everything they 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 were forcing down your throat you right know? but but also the lack of perspective and and look i'm not saying all um all venture funds and all private equity are created equal they're you know they're all different but um but certainly in my experience i have i have seen a number of companies where their board composition is needlessly completely limited to just basically one guy from Greenwich, Connecticut, who went to Wharton and has an MBA and loves spreadsheets, but he doesn't know all the stuff he doesn't know. And that's just part of who that guy is. He grew up in Greenwich. He's just, he's really likable. He means well, he loves his wife, but he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And, and I, and that too frequently, 98% of the board is that one guy. And, and then, then you, and especially like as the general counsel, you know, you're typically the secretary, you're running these board meetings, you're, you're drafting the, the agenda, you're writing the minutes. So even if you're not on the board, you are orchestrating the board, you are watching all different types of boards, advisory boards, governing boards, and you see how they go. And it is shocking to me. That, that that happens as frequently as it happens. And I am not alone. There are many, many stories, many general counsel I know that have seen this many times where, you know, it could be, say, it's a, it's a company in a particular industry, in a space where if they had directors on that board that had real uh, industry knowledge or, or connections or experience or what have you, expertise in some area, it could be game changing for that company. But instead, it's just that same guy from from Wharton that, that is, that is sitting in every one of those seats. And so the focus doesn't stray from the spreadsheet and it doesn't stray from, you know, the EBITDA calculation of blah, 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 90 pages of this one thing that is, and not to say that that isn't very important because obviously money is important, but the, the lack of diversity of thought and perspective and experience and industry knowledge, much less gender and race 
is, um, you know, it just makes sense that that's not the the healthiest. That's not the right. best that company could be. Right. Absolutely. I love it. So you had actually mentioned something, the board boot camp. Tell me a little bit more about that because it's really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the, and the fourth floor is a membership community. So in order to join the fourth floor, you subscribe and there's an annual cost for membership. And there are certain upgrades that you can access once you're in the community that enable you to say, have a, a listing, a storefront in our marketplace or join the investment club. But then we also have programming. So we have a lot of programming that is just for members. Everything from small intimate events to larger events to our feminist take on the Jeffersonian dinner to an accelerator cohort to all types of things. But one of the um, uh, one of our signature uh, pieces of programming is called the Board Bootcamp, which is really a cornerstone. And it it's two hours long. It's open to the public and to members. Members have a much less expensive price. It is true. When people sign up for the board bootcamp, we purposefully take, we try and keep it fairly balanced between entrepreneurs and board candidates. And then the content of the board bootcamp, it's about 50 minutes, 55 minutes of of pure content material with templates and resources and um, uh, worksheets that people can use on their own time to supplement. But there's, you know, it's content-based. Then there's a panel discussion with a recruiter and uh, an experienced board director and a founder who has built out and leveraged an advisory board and or governing boards. And then there's a networking exercise where everybody goes around the room and they have their opportunity to, to make their elevator pitch and to talk about very briefly why they're there, what they're looking for, whether it's a first advisory board opportunity, or maybe it's an independent director seat, or they're looking for advisory board members or independent director directors for their company. So everyone goes around and talks about their needs. And, and then, um, and then we wrap it up, but in just like, just from this board bootcamp, we have had board seat placements that have come out of purely just participating in this two hour workshop. We really encourage people after they go through board bootcamp to join the fourth floor because then they can have access to our internal board seat exchange, which is available to all of our paid members where they can submit themselves as a board candidate or they can submit their open roles where they're actively seeking a candidate. They can submit both sides um, on both sides and then those become what populates in this marketplace, which is our board seat exchange. So that's accessible through our platform to, to all members. And we also have an investment club, which is not fully launched yet, but will be launched soon. And that includes a back room where entrepreneurs who meet certain criteria can apply to list themselves investment targets. And then our other members who are accredited investors, who are most of our members, if they want to, they can join the investment club and invest directly in our entrepreneurs who are actively raising around. And then down the road in the near term, what we hope to do is launch a rolling fund where those same accredited investor members could subscribe to our fund if they wanted to invest that way, as opposed to, right. you know, direct investment. 
I love it. I love it. So any, uh, we're almost out of time here, but I wanted to ask you any sort of parting words you want to give to the people. I definitely highly support the fourth floor. Um, if anybody wants to, they should go check it out. It is the fourth floor.com and it is the word, the T H E, uh, spell out the, what say that again? It's actually .co. .co. Oh, .co. .co. Yes. Yep. <laughs> um, but check it out. And any any sort of parting words as to, you know, really why the fourth floor and and to interest them to check it out even further? Yeah. So, I okay, I guess parting words, I have to end on, you know, really like the bigger vision here is just if we can, you know, if we can build it ourselves and we create our own value creation circle that's really just bumping along and just start spinning fast. I think it's exponential. Yeah. The value and, and, and the just the innovation and the wealth that we can put out into the world. If we can unleash all of this untapped potential, because you started out this conversation with the 2%, you know, versus the 98%, that's real. And that means that there is so much value just being left on the table. And this, I really, really think that that it's in it's within reach by doing this, by by finding a way to really uh, level the playing field when it comes to women having positions of power and being on cap tables and getting the funding to entrepreneurs, to women entrepreneurs. I think it's just going to have an exponential uh, effect that will really be incredible. Awesome. I love it. Everybody, again, I recommend that you guys hit the fourth floor.co. Uh, and ev- thank you so much, Breen. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that is it for this week. Thank you for joining me. And I hope that you enjoyed today's show. If so, don't forget to rate it. If you guys have a pressing question, feel free to tweet me at CS Thrive uh, or on Instagram at Thrive Tribe 3.14159. Again, I know that's a weird one. It's just pie. So it's three, it's thrive underscore tribe underscore 3.14159. Or of course you can join me in Facebook at my free group, which is Thrive Tribe Global. If you just search groups and you enter in Thrive Tribe Global, you should see us there um, and you can join it for free. Uh, I answer your questions in there, but if you guys send me a question through there, I will be sure to answer it here on this podcast. And as always, if you're ever interested in advertising on the show, please contact the Believe Network at Believe, B-L-E-A-V, at Believe.com. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.